What's up, good people? Welcome back to the Holy Shit Pod. In today's episode, Katie, Sam, and I talk in greater detail about exactly what has been happening in the state of Georgia over the last few weeks with HB 531. For those of you who hate political episodes, hear me out and trust me, this is not that. The primary question we're asking is in the episode title. Can white people be saved? We dug around the archives and found a few resources to help us navigate this conversation. Our primary conversation partner will be Willie James Jennings, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology and Africana Studies at Yale Divinity School. Just to be clear, Willie is not here, but we should have invited him. Definitely. So if any of you know Willie personally, we'd love to have him on the show. Honestly, we didn't even try. Oh, I'll text him. But for today, we've just revisited some of his work to frame and guide this conversation and to keep us from going off on random political rants due to just how pissed this has made, I don't know if I can say us, but me. So go ahead and grab your walking shoes and have a nice little nature walk while you listen. Let's get into it. Good morning. Good morning. The head of the Mother's Board Ministry, Secretary Marcia Fudge, who's also the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, wants everyone to know <laughs> that proper church protocol means when oh, I say good morning. You say it back. You say good morning in response. That's right. That was so beautiful. <laughs> she like tapped her ear. That was so Ain't beautiful. y'all got home training? She said, uh, 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 uh good evening. <laughs> If that wasn't my auntie, somebody's grandmama, when you walk in the room and say hello and somebody don't speak, you know, this these this day and age is kind of like, you know, you let it slap like, oh, they didn't say hey. Right. No, no, no. When I grew up, if somebody said hello and you didn't say nothing, they made uh, hello. I'm talking to you. Exactly. I, love I it. think it felt so good to me because I knew that the last presidential administration was like white, white. Mm-hmm. And every single day it was just like an onslaught of whiteness. Right. Like the news is covering Donald Trump's administration and there's no way to cover that without centering whiteness in a way that is just taxing on my soul. And so like the way that Marcia Fudge can just get up there and be like, uh, good morning. Like that was so black and it was all of 10, 20 seconds and it just felt so good. It's bothering me that you keep saying good morning and she actually said good yeah, evening. Yeah, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just... morning right now is what it is. I'm sorry, the day is messed up. Good evening. Good evening. <laughs> Katie, did you feel at home in that? Because <laughs> I deal with you every day. Yep. <laughs> and you are an old woman, Brandon. And that's fine. So the second church announcement is a little bit heavier. Um, we need all members of the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple of For All Saints and Aints to know that anti-Asian violence is a real thing. We were recording this portion of the episode the Saturday after we heard the news of the anti-Asian violent shootings, murders here in the state of Georgia, the Saturday before we released this episode. If you haven't heard, if you've been living under a rock or if you're watching Fox News, several news agencies reported that a white man who shall remain nameless here, because we don't want to glorify that name, but he went into three separate massage parlors and killed eight people, six of them women of Asian descent, seven women total. The man is a self-identified Christian and a proud member of the Crab Apple Baptist Church of Milton, Georgia. When asked about the shootings, a member of that same congregation commented that the shootings were a result of a sinful heart and a depraved mind. The member went on to say the shootings were a total repudiation of our faith and practice, and such actions are completely unacceptable and contrary to the gospel. There really aren't words to capture how horrible the situation is or how horrible it is that this kind of shooting is so common. 
by evangelical white men against Asian Americans, Black Americans, Latinx Americans, and immigrants. As I read the same article about the Baptist church in which the shooter was a member, I couldn't help but think also about how skewed his understanding of sex and faithfulness and being human is. This idea that sex is bad. I mean, he he had just, it was eating him up. I hesitate to talk about it now because I, I don't want to take accountability away from him. But I do think that the church itself perpetuates or builds or fuels this kind of self-hatred and hatred of other people at the same time. I don't want to take away responsibility from him by saying that, though, because he's completely accountable for his actions. I just think it's interesting that the church plays a part. Interesting. Black man? I I don't know. I'm thinking about this notion. We've talked before about this idea of to know God is really to be human, to be fully and completely human. As I listen to KT, it's the reality that white supremacy— more than anything else, robs the people who are perpetuating the white supremacy of their humanity, which gets at this notion of can white people be saved if the only way to be saved is to be human, is to live fully into your humanness, your humanity. And white supremacy does not allow that, then there is no way to be saved and be white supremacist at the same time. Or be white at the same time, for that matter. Well, that's different. I didn't want to go that far. Not yet. Okay, I do. So what do you mean? So you you unpack it. What do you mean? So white people can't be saved. Katie, you're going to hell. Okay. <laughs> it's the extent to which people identify with their whiteness. Uh-huh. Like, whiteness is a farce. Whiteness is not real. Race is entirely real in the ways that it produces violence and hatred in our society and our world. It's entirely real in that Black people reclaimed what it means to be Black and redefined what it means to be Black. But it's also entirely false in that it did not exist before. Different types of people, Irish people, British people, Danish people, started to say we need something that unites all of us and makes us one against Black people and against other people who are closer to the Black side of the scale, mm-hmm. um, like our Asian siblings. And so there are ways in which it's just fake. And so I think that what's necessary and what's difficult, in the same way that it's difficult for me as a Black person to trace my ancestry back to the African continent, it's also difficult for white folks to say, well, I actually am Irish, and what that means is X, Y, and Z. And I think the other thing that's challenging is because of how effective white people have been in centering whiteness in the conversation, we do oftentimes omit our Asian siblings. Right. Because we, I mean, I've done it. I position Asian folks as being closer to whiteness, right? We have these stereotypes of Asians being the model minority, right? Asians being the closest to whiteness and that they have X, Y, and Z characteristics. And we talk about Asians being smart and Asians making good grades Mm -hmm. and Asian people being non-sexual beings. And so they can be closer to whiteness because of all of those racial stereotypes. And there's a way in which we're calling whiteness sexy. We're calling whiteness smart. We're calling whiteness the center of the universe by placing Asians next to them on the racial hierarchy. And that's how we get to this place where we got this joker from Crabapple Baptist Church shooting up the spa because we're not taking seriously the fact that this racial construct fucks up everybody's life. White people, Asian people, Black people, Latinx people. And we continue to just have the same conversation over and over again. Hmm. And that's why I say white people can't be saved. You've convinced me. I mean, it didn't take much. <laughs> but I'm convinced. So, 
um, if you're listening, just know that anti-Asian violence is a real thing. And we are trying to make sure that folks understand that it's also rooted in our religious traditions, hmm. stems from our churches and the conversations that we have inside of sanctuaries on Sunday mornings. Hmm. But I don't want to linger there too long or tarry there too long, if you will, because I'm still trying to center the fact that six Asian women died. Yep. And that's what's most important. The actions of this guy, they really infuriate me, but they don't shock me. I think that's the most unfortunate thing. It's unfortunate that a crime this heinous has no shock value. Yeah. White Christians like this guy from Crabapple have been committing atrocities under the name of Jesus for centuries. Centuries. The first known slave ship to transport Africans was the good ship Jesus. Hmm. Made his first voyage in 1562 from Sierra Leone with 300 enslaved Africans. And they had religious services on the ship twice a day. And so when I hear this church person's response, I just think it's amazing what minoritized populations around the world have done to rescue and sanitize the gospel and the image of God from white supremacy and whiteness. White supremacy has done more to harm the gospel than any other force in the history of the world. And so maybe the question isn't, can white people be saved, but can the image of God be saved from whiteness and white supremacy? I got to think about that. Maybe our work is not to save white people. We gotta, we're constantly in a battle to save God, to save the image of God from the destruction brought about by whiteness and white supremacy. And this event in Georgia only proves that the work of saving the image of God from white supremacy is ongoing work. Why'd you step away from it? I heard you say the first time, right? Saving the image of God. But then when you got into your little black preacher rhythm, you said saving God and then step back into saving the image of God. Is the task to save an image of God or is the task to save God? Um, that may be a tension that I still wrestle with because the question is, Something I need to parse out is not that I'm afraid of the answer. It's just that I need to think about it a little more. The question is, has God been denigrated by white supremacy? Or has the image that is being perpetuated of God been denigrated? Are we trying to save God, God's self? Or are we trying to rehabilitate and rescue the image of God that has been um, what's the word that I'm looking for that has kind of been taken captive by whiteness and white folks? I think it is God, God's self. And there's a, a book that I, we can post in the show notes that called Of Manna and Mercy that rereads the Bible through a constructivist lens. And it's this notion that God and humanity are in a relationship. Um, but I think the idea and the image that comes to mind is that there is this dynamic relationship between the divine, the holy other, and humanity. And at this juncture in history, and for at least the last 200, 300, 400 years of history, white people have literally taken God captive, hidden God in a box, mm. locked the box, put it in the closet, put it under the bed, put it in the storage, <laughs> put it in 57 safes with retinal scanners, <laughs> and they've taken God captive. And I don't believe any of us have ever truly seen God in the American context, but all that we are pining after is white people's vision of God. Mm. And so it's not the image that needs to be saved. The image is the problem. We need to save God. Mm. In the same way that 2,000 years ago, God sent God's don't, only we're not child. Gonna, we're not going to go to the Baptist. <laughs> I'm not, but, but, I'm, but, nope. but the Baptist turn is helpful here for me, right? Because in that same way, if that's the story you believe and you proclaim, what's the way that you honor God most? 
return God the favor. As opposed to creating God in your own image, go back and save God just like God sent God's child to save you. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. That's some good stuff right there. Katie, look, Katie is ready to give her life. <laughs> <laughs> give your life to Jesus. And I think, uh, honestly, uh, Brendan, I think what you just articulated, which might I add, you did very well, you know, to be a black guy. <laughs> I'm smart for a black guy. Hella articulate. <laughs> <laughs> what you just articulated is really, I, I think is really what I meant but because I hadn't really parsed out this distinction between kind of, am I talking about God, God's self? Am I talking about the image of God? I think, I think I knew that I was talking about God, but I wanted to be careful with my language, with yeah. my words in case I hadn't really thought that completely through or, you know, but, but what you just articulated is exactly what I, was, what I meant. I mean, and the reality is I say things for how I experience and feel them in the moment because that's the most truthful thing I can do. I might go back and listen to this episode and be like, actually, let me nuance that a little bit. Trust me, we know. Oh, shut the hell up. <laughs> but I do think today and every day, that is something, like that. that's the first time that I've thought that thought in that way because I've been in this place of trying to figure out if saving any version of Christianity or faith is necessary or can I lean into what it means to be human and lean into humanism more, which we have to do an episode on because we've gotten a few emails asking for that. But, but this language of what it means to save God and to assume that what we've been relating to is not God at all breathes fresh air into the conversation for me, at least. It does. What, what I will say is Asian people are holy and Asian people are sacred. And what I will say is that as long as we are killing Asian people, we are still worshiping the white God mm. or white folks' image of God. Because it's only that sort of distortion of God that can allow somebody who sits in a church on a Sunday morning to go and shoot up six, three different spots. It's only a distortion of God that can allow the police force that would have shot a black man dead before he even got set foot inside of one yes. massage parlor. Let a black man carry somebody's gun around and then drive across town to another spot. No, it's only the distorted image of God that allows that shit to happen on a daily basis. And for the police to say, this dude was just having a bad day. Right. And for the news to say, this may be a hate crime. <laughs> domestic terrorism. It may be racist. We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? There's no doubt. This is a hate crime. There is no doubt. So, I mean, I, I think because of the gravity of what has happened and the fact that um, it happens on a daily basis and we don't often talk about it. We tarried here a little longer than I thought we might, but I think it's necessary to understand the gravity of this. It's not just the case that when Black people are murdered, we need to have these moments of grief and reflection and conversation and dialogue and transformation. It also has to be the case in these moments. It can't just be like, oh yeah, another Asian person. Or we can't assume that this is the first time this has happened. It may be the first time that it's being reported on in this way and to this extent. It is one of right. the first times that I've seen a national conversation in this way. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we had an idiot in the White House for the last four years who talked about the China virus. Yep. In somewhat unrelated news, I am a New York Times junkie, so you'll hear me talk about the Times on this podcast on a regular <laughs> basis. They don't provide any funding for us. If you're interested, New York Times, hit us up. But this is not an ad, so I'm not telling you to subscribe or anything until they send us some ad money. It's just my particular preference to read the Times. That being said, the Times released a fascinating list of people who can and cannot get a vaccine. And it is actually really surprising and kind of 
saddening. An 18-year-old in Shanghai can get the vaccine, but a 70-year-old in Shanghai cannot. Like, some of the most vulnerable people in Shanghai are not able to yeah. get the vaccine. An 80-year-old person in Kenya cannot get the vaccine. A 90-year-old in South Korea cannot get a vaccine. Nobody in Haiti can get a vaccine. Over 61 countries have zero vaccines and are not dispersing them. Who can? Anybody who can afford a smartphone or an internet connection in India and who's also over the age of 60, they can get one. Anybody who can pay $13,000 and travel to the United Arab Emirates for three weeks and or is 65 or older Hmm. and can prove that they have a health condition, they can get a vaccine. But you know who can't? You can't get a vaccine if you're a smoker in the state mm-hmm. of Georgia. You can't if you're a diabetic in Connecticut. You can't if you're a pregnant woman in Germany. You can't if you're a grocery store worker in Texas. But I think this um, tension that I'm realizing is, um, I think all three of us have gotten at least one dose of, of a vaccine. I think, Kaylee, Katie, you and I are fully vaccinated. Sam, you have your second dose coming soon. It's still troubling that the United States and other minority world countries, minority world being, like we, we talk about the developed world, but I've I've heard this new language recently of minority world because people that live in Western context truly are the minority of the population. While we're stockpiling vaccines in the minority world, over 140 mostly low-income countries around the world will likely take until 2022 or longer to vaccinate their population. Yeah, well, one of the things that I was thinking of um, in terms of the hoarding is I think we just sent AstraZeneca. We we had a stockpile of AstraZeneca that we sent to some country. I do not know what it was, but it's like we're even like stockpiling. Canada and Mexico, I think. Really? Yeah, so we're like stockpiling vaccines that we we can't even use. But I mean, this is just uh, simply continuing this America first mindset that that really didn't start with Trump. This has been a mainstay of our kind of view of the world since we started. We are looking out for ourselves at all costs while simultaneously doing all kinds of things that hinder our ability to get the virus under control easing masking and distancing restrictions, sending teachers back to school without vaccines, encouraging travel again. We're like this this perfect storm of abject selfishness and instant gratification at the same time. And all that does is kill more people in our country and it continues to perpetuate the rising deaths of people around the world. I'm thinking about like, we've got a group chat with some of my friends. The age range is similar. We're all between 35, well, 30 and probably 45. But we all have really different things. Some of us take multiple medications a day. One of us are pregnant. It's not me. I'm not the pregnant one. That would have been an announcement. You know, you're like 57 months pregnant. (laughs) I had my baby. I had my baby. You birthed that baby. Uh, Hey, glory, glory. (laughs) Jesus, pregnant in the spirit. (laughs) We, for the last month, we've been having conversations about trying to find, trying to get vaccinated. And one of my friends had gone to two or three different locations and they basically said, no, you can't, you can't be vaccinated. What I thought was crazy about this is that her husband is a nurse in the part of the ICU that is the COVID wing. And I'm thinking to myself, she has three children. She has older parents. They don't live with her, but she interacts with them regularly. And I'm thinking to myself, so they will vaccinate your husband who works in the COVID wing, but they won't vaccinate his spouse. That just 
did not click for me. My pregnant friend who's about to give birth, who's been really concerned about being able to get this vaccine, had to go through churches and different places. She's been trying to find places that she could go and, t- and get this vaccine because she knew if she went like to a Walgreens or to somewhere else that they would basically deny her the vaccine. And so this has just been very fascinating and interesting as we, as we think about who is eligible for this vaccine. So the word is, folks, we still want you to continue to seek out vaccines and be vaccinated. That is the best choice you can make for your health and for your life. If you have vaccine angst, just know that it, uh, for all intents and purposes, is safe. And if you are a person of color who has angst around vaccines, look at the number of white people rushing to get it and getting it by improper means and methods and get this vaccine. Uh, The last announcement, it seems to be the case that Republicans have officially rejected Donald Trump himself. However, they've embraced his tactics. Politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene from the state of Georgia have decided that they do not have time for legislating, but they do have time, plenty of time, in fact, for brand building on social media, television, and through public appearances. Members of the Social Justice Ministry of the Church of Holy Shit and the Temple of All Saints want you to know that we see you, and that's real, real cute. Yeah, I think Marjorie Taylor Greene said she was so glad that she wasn't on a committee so she could... she couldn't be bogged down by all that work. I'm like, what the fuck are you supposed to be doing? Like, this is what... Ooh, sorry, Sam. I know you're trying to stop cussing. Is he? When? Where? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I was reading that article, I started thinking about back to Walter Wink, who talks about the powers and principalities. And and one of the things that the powers do is create diversions and distractions. And, and that's what this kind of stuff is. Like, they don't want us to know what's going on behind the scenes. So yeah. these like social media caricatures are out there spewing hate and vitriol. They're just trying to work to stall anything the government can do. They're working to ban black people from voting and they're working to fuel the kind of shootings that we were just talking about. This is why I miss David, because at least David would quote black people. <laughs> Here you come with some damn Walter Wink shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, first of all, Brandon, you said it seems to be the case that Republicans have officially rejected Donald Trump. I'm not quite sure if that's the case yet. The person. And th- I still don't think that that's the case yet. The jury is still out. Jury is still out. I think yeah. eventually they will. The challenge for Republicans, I think is that their brand building does not involve reimagining the values of their party. What they want to do now is change the rules, redraw lines, keep people out. They want to say, okay, in order for us not to lose, we don't want to evolve. We don't want to have to grow. We don't want to have to reflect and figure out who or what we need to become. We just need to keep y'all niggas from voting. Right. And it's like, as long as we can do that, we'll still hold on to some vestige of power for the near future. And I will be, I will be glad when that day comes where it's over. Like they couldn't win if they wanted to. So I think this is actually a good spot for a quick break. The word for the people today is a question about whether or not white people can be saved. We've kind of teased that a few times here in the first part of the podcast. And we want you to hold on to your horses and hang out for a bit. We'll be right back after this selection from the choir. Sing choir.
That was a little bit of love for our OG listeners from The Mourner's Bench. If you did not listen to The Mourner's Bench, that was the theme song from that podcast. And the OGs said that they missed the theme song. So you may hear it periodically in future episodes. I told you that we would sneak it in. I am a human of my word. There it was. Be thankful. (laughs) Let's get back into it. So during last week's church announcements, we talked about House Bill 531 and the Georgia state legislature's attempt to roll back voter protections and impose further restrictions on black folks at the polls. If you need a reminder of what's happening, here it is. Georgia Republicans have been advancing this bill, House Bill 531, that discontinues any form of automatic voter registration decreases both eligibility and availability of absentee ballots, bans mail-in drop boxes, and here's the big one, limits weekend voting, and by proxy, the Black church tradition of souls to the polls. Last time we were recording, House Bill 531 had just passed the House and was on its way to the Senate. It's been stalled and hasn't passed there yet, so maybe that's something for which we can be hopeful. But we still think that for all (laughs) intents and purposes, it's going to pass the Senate as well. What are y'all thinking about what's happening and how it's developed in the past few days? I'm almost speechless by this action. Well, not speechless, but I want to shout a bunch of those words that our moms would be mad at us about. I simply cannot fathom how people can't see that these folks are lying about voter fraud and are willfully taking aim at Black voters, specifically in the bigger cities, to prevent them from voting, period. I get that people might not see their implicit bias. They might even be one of those folks who doesn't believe that exists, which is also unfathomable. I think Sam calls it bullshit. Yes, bullshit, yes. I do say that word a lot on this show, don't I? It's your word. (laughs) It's not holy bullshit. It's just outright bullshit. This is like neon lights voter suppression, and people still aren't calling the Republicans out. Nothing surprises me anymore. This is white supremacy functioning as it is intended. Yeah. I I would actually be more surprised if white people did nothing in response to the historic turnout by African-Americans and other minorities. History is filled. I don't have time to list all the examples, but history is filled with examples of white folks creating rules that Mm -hmm. advantage themselves and then changing those rules when black people learn the game. That's real. And folks may say, well, pastor, how do you know it's a white thing? Why do you have to bring color into this? Because in Georgia, it's overwhelmingly black districts that are standing in line mm-hmm. for hours, hours. to vote. Mm-hmm. It's black churches that are busing their elderly to the polls on Sunday after church. It's black folks voting early and by mail or utilizing drop boxes in overwhelming numbers. These laws impact and affect black people who are legally, legally voting based on the laws white people pass to benefit themselves. I like how you shifted into your black preacher mode for a second. You said, well, pastor, how do you know it was white people? How do you know? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I'm glad. Oh, my God. But no. Well, I'm about to take a text. Go ahead. Take one if you want to. No, 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 no. I ain't got no text. House Bill 531. You can read that thing historically. This is par for the course. I don't know if I was surprised, but it still does piss me off. Like the predictability of it all pisses me off. Mm. Like you said, you can almost set your clock by white supremacy at this juncture. The only thing that may surprise me a little bit If you're in the Georgia State Legislature, you can put your little fancy bio on the internet and people can go and search for it. And so I went and searched for the authors of House Bill 531. All of them are Republican. All of them are white. And five of the six of them make it a point to let everyone know that they are Christians. They list their church affiliation on their biography. 
And some of these churches are um, multicultural, multiracial churches, and that's part of their branding scheme. And I'm intentionally using that word scheme. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting here like, you go to a church, you call yourself a Christian, and this is the shit that you do. It makes me think of uh, Mm -hmm. the work of Willie James Jennings. I first encountered Willie back in 2010 or so when I read his first book, The Christian Imagination. We don't need to go too far into that because that's a very meaty text and we should probably invite Willie on the pod to discuss that and some of his later works as well. But in the introduction of the book, he tells this story about he and his mother working in the garden in their backyard. Mm -hmm. And as they're working there, these white men infringe upon their space. He doesn't frame it this way per se, but he draws a very colorful picture and it's white men entering the space that does not belong to them as if it does belong to them and asking the people who live there, A question. And the questions are all about their salvation and about Jesus and if they go to church. And as the story unfolds, Willie's mother looks up at them and she gives them their whole sort of spiritual autobiography and tells them, oh, yeah, we're very devout Christians. My husband is a pastor. My son is this and I'm that. And so he tells this story. The concern about that interaction is that it signaled for him that our sort of racial imagination or our way of thinking about race has overridden or trumped our spiritual and or Christian imaginations. He asks his mother, why didn't they recognize us? Mm -hmm. Mm. And that's the question that I'm asking of Georgia Republicans, Iowa Republicans, and any other politicians or Republicans or Democrats, because Democrats can do this in their own way as well. But I'm asking this of all politicians, people, communities that advance this type of legislation. Why don't you recognize those your Bible, your sacred text tells you should be your siblings? Why don't you recognize your siblings? I think it's because the Bible and Christianity for white people is subordinate to white supremacy. Hmm. It has to be, right? That's why it's so easy for white folks to make the Bible this weapon of oppression uh, and suppression. You couldn't do that if you took seriously the themes of liberation and justice found within scripture or, or in the gospels and the narratives of Christ that this motif of giving up power to identify with the powerless and the marginalized. And so I think about this quote often attributed to Archbishop Desmond Tutu. He says, when the missionaries came to Africa, they had the Bible and we had the land. They said, let us close our eyes and pray. And when we opened our eyes, we had the Bible and they had the land. Mm. The white Christianity and the white Christ has always been a tool of oppression. Yeah, These legislators don't recognize those whose scripture says are their siblings because white Jesus bows at the altar of white supremacy. Copy, paste, repeat. Right, exactly what he said. I mean, Christianity is a colonial religion, right? Yes. Like, it's all about what it means to own someone else, to take your political power, your political persuasion, your country's values, your ethnocentrism, and place it on someone else, right? And Christianity really did walk hand in hand with colonialism. Missionaries would oftentimes, maybe all the times, would Mm -hmm. go to these foreign countries that did not belong to them and treat everything there as if it belonged to them. White folks have always been taught that they own the world, they own shit. And so they would use Christianity to evangelize the people and save their souls to domesticate the people with slave Bibles, as we talked about in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And after they had convinced them that it was God's will for their life to be in relationship with them as white people, then they would dominate them. And I might suggest the domination started from the beginning. Like it didn't actually start after the Christianity came in. The Christianity was the precursor, the entree, the appetizer of the full meal that was all about oppression, domination, and colonialism. 
Yeah, I'd be interested to know what Christianity looked like before we took over the world in Constantine's time. I wish we could get back to that. I'm not sure that it was much better as we read Paul, but certainly since at least 300 AD, we have been all about power, colonization, yep. the Crusades. And and so those white folks walking into Willie Jennings' home is just a continuation of that. Perhaps if we tell them about Jesus enough, they're going to be tamed or civilized or something like that. And it's this white supremacist idea that anything that is not white is not civilized or not knowledgeable mm. or not true. And you have to jump through a lot of hurdles to get there, right? Oh, you have to not believe anything that's actually in the Bible. You have to believe in yourself, right? Right. You have to believe in the supremacy of whiteness. I mean, Sam, you had a good point in the last episode or so where you were talking about oftentimes we like to critique interpretation of Scripture and not Scripture itself. Sometimes Scripture is the problem, so I think it's important to make that distinction. It's not a matter of interpretation solely. It is actually about the fact that there are things in Scripture in the Christian sacred texts, in the Bible, that say, slaves, be submissive to your masters. And so these things do start somewhere inside of the Christian tradition, inside of the Jewish tradition. And there's a long history of this. And even with empires, even in the Bible, right? Empires are in the Bible and they're told to go and take other people's lands in the name of Yahweh, in the name of God. And so like for me, we have to also critique that and have to start asking questions about what is the role of scripture in all of this? And how has scripture been compiled, canonized in a manner that actually still contributes to domination, oppression, violence? And if the role of Holy Scripture is to illuminate or describe what life can be like with God, there's some shit that we don't need to do with God, i.e. bashing babies' heads against stones because that's what Yahweh told you to do. Copy, paste, repeat again with everything that you said. I'm, I'm leaning more into this idea that scripture itself in, in many instances is absolutely problematic. And whether, you know, people might be like, well, Paul said this. Well, Paul shouldn't have said right. that shit. Like that was the most ridiculous advice that you would give people. Oh, because you're in servitude, just keep your head down and obey your masters. What kind of shit is that? No, yeah. no, this ain't right. right. You know, and so and so because it's in our holy canon, because it's in our holy text, we try to justify it and reconcile it with, you know, oh, it's all, all scriptures given as inspiration by God. So we must all reverence it and respect it. And you can't say anything against it. No, absolutely not. Paul was wrong for writing that. This is not right. And declare me a heretic, if you will. No, I don't. Well, I'm not talking about you because you worse than me. Whatever. <laughs> I feel like we should end every episode with the Heretic of the Day Award to determine which of us has been the most heretical, (laughs) and we should wear that as a proud badge. I have a strange feeling that it's always going to be either me or you, Sam, and not because we're black, but because Katie just won't go there with us. (laughs) Actually, Katie always is the Heretic of the Day because she's white, and until... (laughs) Problem solved. No need for a new segment. So lately, Willie has been furthering his research in this area. He's written a few articles and a book and had a few lectures even about segregation. And he's thought deeply about spatial politics and theology, spatial being space, like how we position things in a particular environment. Back in 2018, Willie James Jennings wrote a piece in the Christian Century entitled European Christian Missionaries and Their False Sense of Progress. The article begins with the question, can white people be saved. Now, before we go any deeper into this particular article, I want to linger here on this question because I think it assumes a familiarity with 
the concept of being saved, salvation. So let's start there. What is salvation? The Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for salvation is literally Yahshua, which is actually also the Hebrew word for Jesus. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it means like the Lord's victory or the Lord's deliverance. You don't pull out your Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Look at you. Okay. I had to exegete the text. You like them pastors that they got one semester of seminary after 20 years of ministry talking about in the Greek. In right? the Greek. <laughs> in the Greek. In the Hebrew. We see here. When salvation is referenced in the Hebrew Bible, they're speaking about the Lord's salvation, Mm -hmm. the Lord's deliverance, the Lord's victory. It belongs to and is given by God. And so in the New Testament, this salvation is brought about through the work of Christ who moves incarnationally. Down, break that word down for us. We believe that Jesus has been incarnated. Embodied, enfleshed. Embodied, right. He's been given a body. You know, who got the body? The funeral home. (laughs) He's been given a body. And so in this very real sense, when God is in God's realm, God has this unlimited power. And through this incarnation of Christ, God moves from this place of ultimate power to this place of humanity where that power is limited. And so that's why I say that Christ moves incarnationally from a place of power to a place of powerlessness. And we are instructed to imitate this mindset. And so though Jesus, second Philippians says, though Jesus was the very nature of God, he did not consider himself equal with God, but humbled himself. So if white people are to ever be saved, they must give up power and privilege and identify with the powerless and the marginalized in this society or in whatever society that they are in. I think you came to preach today. It's like you just got your manuscript because you keep citing all your little texts and stuff and going to the Hebrew or going to the Greek. So salvation to you sounds like it's about identifying with powerlessness. To be saved, one must give up power or at least for white people, right? Talking about white people right now. Okay. I'm just just making sure. So, Katie, what about you? What is salvation? Yeah, so that's interesting. We don't talk about being saved a lot in the Presbyterian church. Whenever those folks would, you know, come around our neighborhood and knock on the door and ask if I'm saved, my answer would always be, yeah, 2,000 years ago, this is about Jesus and what he did. You preached a word to them folks, Katie. Yeah, 2,000. Yeah, Shabbatanyan on my say. She said the blood still has power. That's right. <laughs> well, it's the death and the resurrection, right? Y'all trying to preach today. My salvation only comes through that. The Reformed tradition can talk for days about it, but in the normal church where people are, we think about, I'm not worthy of any of these gifts or any of this connection or any of this relationship with God again, but God through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection makes us one with God again. And so that is how we are saved. But I'm interested by what Sam said when I hear that white people, in order to be saved, must give up power and privilege and identify with the powerless in society. That's taking me to baptism, right? Which is a ritual of salvation, right? That I must die to something in order to live in order to be saved. I just like that addition in there to think about what it is that we have to give up because I think we think about salvation as something we don't necessarily participate in. But what I hear from you is a salvation where we have to do something. I think a lot of white people think similarly to Katie. While we're discussing salvation, salvation happened over 2,000 years ago, the finished work of Christ on the cross. Mm -hmm. That was God's salvation. That's why he's Yahshua. And so it's interesting that white people believe that they are saved 
but also believe that they have to go out and save everybody else. <laughs> you just said it. <laughs> you just said That's some crazy <laughs> shit. So we are already saved. So we got to make sure everybody else is saved because we are in a perpetual state of being saved or living in salvation. Right. Wow. I don't know that it's all white people. That's my white people. Right. It's your white people. It's the Presbyterians. Right. It's not the youth groups that are knocking on my door asking if I'm saved. Y'all are saying this like is more so Presbyterians, but I, I think a lot of white folks believe that they're saved. That, yeah, that they're, that they're saved. Is it that they are already saved or that they are themselves salvation? Ooh. <laughs> well, I think because a lot of white people identify with Christ as being this white figure, you know, this blue eyed, blonde haired, you know, it's this white man died for people to be saved. Of course, it's white people because he's white. White people identified salvation as something as theirs and also as something yeah. that they must spread to the rest of the world, that they must give to everyone else who may not have it. Right. This is ours. I would like to know how many missionaries are going to Switzerland. Right. <laughs> right. Are going to Denmark. Right. I want to know what those missionary programs are like that are going to primarily white parts of the world. That doesn't raise any money, though. It only raises money if you say, I'm going to Africa or I'm going to South America, where the brown people are. Like, but you can't raise the money for a mission trip to Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> the money is not an issue. They, they write checks. It's about where they prioritize, where they believe that they have to go and evangelize. Yeah. This is intriguing because I'm thinking now about like this phenomenon of door knocking and how in particularly like Baptist churches, evangelical communities, there's this trend where you go and knock on people's doors to ask them if they know Jesus, to ask them if they've been saved. And I'm thinking about zip codes and how people pick zip codes. And I'm thinking about congregations. I was a part of a congregation when I first got to Atlanta. When I say I was a part of, I mean, I was on staff at a church in Atlanta. They, every Saturday, would have Soul Winter Saturday. And they would go out and knock on the doors in their own neighborhood. It was always in the Black neighborhoods. They never went to white neighborhoods to evangelize them. And so there was this presumption that it was all about saving Black people. I live in a very, very white neighborhood now. It just happens to be the house that was available at the time that I was looking for one. And nobody's ever come on my doorstep trying to save me because they probably presume I'm saved because of the zip code in which I live. Mm. Hmm. You know Jesus. That's the thing, right? Well, that's interesting because nobody comes to my door here and I live in a predominantly white neighborhood. But in Durham, when we lived in North Carolina, folks were there all the time. Two times a month, they would bus in the white youth group from some sort of localish Baptist church. Probably from Raleigh. Probably. They probably did come from that far away because my neighborhood was fairly mixed. And so, yeah, I had never thought about that being the reason why they would come to my neighborhood there. I mean, we had... Jehovah Witness, we had the Southern Baptist kids all the time. You were adjacent to the black right. people and the brown people. So right. they had to evangelize you in case some of that black stuff right. wore off yeah. on you as a white woman. And clearly it did because you're a lesbian. And I love the way that Katie is using nice language. I, I didn't live in North Carolina as long as you, but as soon as I got there, it was very clear and apparent, even in the language that people use to describe the geographical locations, that Raleigh was the white mm -hmm. part and that Durham was the black oh, part. Yeah. Yeah. And when you even look at the cost of living between the two places, I think even though they were right up the street from each other, it was almost a $15,000 difference. Oh, yeah. 
between the cost of living in Raleigh versus the cost of living in Durham. It was it was very much the place that you sent the missionary, oh, yeah. that you sent the people to evangelize. You weren't sending buses into Raleigh, into those super rich white neighborhoods. Right. They were going to Durham where the, where the black folks were. Where the black folks were and where the violence is, right? That's the other piece of it. They talk about the violence that happens in Durham, but if you look at the numbers of homicides or what have you, it's it's the same in Raleigh and Durham per capita, but they don't talk about it. They only talk about it in Durham because that's where the black Correct. folks live. So continuously hmm. keeping up this image that violence exists around black folks and white folks are mm. following the law or something. Yeah, because they say, they've been saved. Since Jesus. If you belong to a church that does these little door knocking salvation campaigns, I want you to ask for a... They ain't listening to us, bro. <laughs> some of them are. I think some of them might be. Because I think there's some... I, I do know for a fact that there are some listeners that may be connected to me from a distance who are reading themselves out of these traditions uh, and trying to find the courage that it takes to take the next step, right? I'm a firm believer that nature doesn't like a void. And even if this religious community is no longer serving me and no longer fits me, there's a way in which it is still filling something in my life. And in the absence of something to be placed in that void, I'm going to mm-hmm. stay in this context. So you may be a person who doesn't agree with what's happening. And a way to initiate a conversation in that community is to say, what's the zip code of the houses that we visit most frequently when we're trying to save souls? Because you can quickly find data about what kind of people live in those zip codes, what they look like, what they smell like, their racial ethnic background. You can quickly find that information. I was walking outside one day with a couple of friends and in undergrad, I had a very racially diverse group of friends. Um, It was kind of odd because we were at an all white school, but it just so happened that I knew all the black people who went there because it was that few of us. And then white folks who were kind of I wouldn't even call them politically solid with our struggle necessarily. Some of them were, but some of them just, I think, wanted a black friend. We were coming out of like TCBY treats or something, getting yogurt, very like granola activity. And as we were coming out, there was a man who was clearly like living in some state of poverty. The person wasn't housed. The reason that I made that assumption is because that person had a grocery cart that had a lot of belongings in it. And the person did indicate as well that, you know, they were trying to get into the shelter, but it had closed. So all that to be said, we went into the TCBY treats, got our little yogurt, came back out. And as we were walking out, one of my white female friends said to us, y'all, I think we should go tell that man like about Jesus and like ask if he knows Jesus. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. And a few of my black friends were like, no, let's, let's do it. And I was like, but why? Like, why do we need to ask him if he knows Jesus? Like, the man's asking for money. And what you're saying is, do you know Jesus? He's literally sitting outside of the TCBY treats and asking if you can help him get a little frozen yogurt. And you're going to offer him Jesus? I think we, just, we have to do this. And I was like, okay, the only way I'm going to stand around for this, I'm not going to participate, is if y'all buy this man some yogurt. So they went in, get a cup of yogurt, come back out, and my white friend proceeds to say, do you know Jesus? And he says, I know Jesus. Just like Willie James Jennings' mother, he begins to recount his spiritual autobiography and the ways that he's been connected with Jesus throughout his life. Everything that I'm hearing is like, this man knows the Lord, let's go. My white friend persisted in pressing the question and telling the man, 
well, I just know that if you give your life over to him, that things are going to work out for you and things are going to be okay. It's like the man has already told you he knows him. What do you mean give your life over to him? So like if your salvation or your concept or idea of salvation has a zip code, if it has a phenotype, if it has a socioeconomic status, then what you have is not salvation. What you have is idolatry. You have positioned yourself in the middle of faith. And so we don't even have to think about this sort of colonial impulse of Christianity as in Americans going to Zimbabwe is literally walking across the railroad tracks, going into a zip code, connecting to a racial ethnic other. Hmm. That still is a colonial impulse. It is. I, I wrote this book in, uh, whoa, whoa, shit, I didn't write a book. <laughs> Come on, Sam. Come on, published. <laughs> Let me go to Amazon. Maybe I'm speaking <laughs> prophetically. <laughs> I wrote this paper in seminary titled Ecclesial Colonialism and the Ways in mm. Which Our Spiritual Policies Colonialize Other Countries and Cultures. It was really focused on the prosperity gospel. As we talk about this, I'm wondering how much of this prosperity gospel, this notion that because of your current social economic status, because you're poor, because you don't have money, because you find yourself homeless or in a certain situation, you have sinned or you have done wrong or you don't know God. And so it almost seems like your friend could not fathom that this person actually had a bona fide relationship with Jesus because of his condition. Yep. Because of his location at that particular stage in his life. Oh, absolutely. Or or because he was black. Yes. All, All of the above. And that this man is hungry or that folks don't have homes or that folks don't have health care. And we think that going and saying, do you know Jesus is the answer, A, but B, that someone would have to prove it. Like, why does this man have to sit there and recount his story? Why does Willie James Jennings' mother have to recount her story? Get the hell out of my yard. Yep. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll more directly address the question, can white people be saved? The answer is hell no. The Holy Shit Pod is brought to you. Do I have to say shit? What you mean? Are you trying to stop cussing? Nah. The Holy Shit Pod is brought to you by Theolab Media, a podcast network and digital collective working to transform how humans engage faith, spirituality, and the world. Theolab believes Did that... Did tell you to stop cussing so much? I'm in the middle of reading my shit, man. I know, but why... Oh, no, she didn't. Okay, keep going. <laughs> she cussed more than me. Well, why are you trying to say that you don't want to say shit? This is being difficult. Oh, keep going. The Holy Shit Pod is brought to you by Theolab Media. Why are you Media. starting over? Just go right where you were. Where was I? Theolab believes... Theolab believes that candid dialogues that are rooted in authenticity and vulnerability can foster courage and help each of us cultivate. You're going to start that whole sentence up, ain't you? Do I need to say each of us? Can I just say help us cultivate truly life-giving relationships? You know, if you read beforehand, you can always do that. Mm -hmm. Theolab believes candid dialogues that are rooted in authenticity and relationships. Oops, skipped a line. Theolab believes candid dialogues that are rooted in authenticity and vulnerability can foster courage and help us cultivate true life-giving relationships with God and one another. Find out more by visiting theolabmedia.com or heading over to Instagram and following Theolab Media. All right. At Theolab Media. I mean, I guess they don't need the at. I guess that's like so boomerish of me. 
or heading over, or heading over to <laughs> Thanks, Boomer. Katie, don't be offended. Katie's not a boomer. She's an ex. I'm oh. not a boomer. I'm an ex. Okay, Boomer. <laughs> or, <laughs> or heading over to Instagram and following Theo Lab Media. All right, back to the show. So back in 2008. All right, back to the show. All right, all right, back to the show. All right, back to the show. You getting worse than me. <laughs> I was thinking he was just getting right about your level. No, he's worse. Because <laughs> mine is no. natural. His is in jest. <laughs> so back in 2018, Billy James Jennings wrote a piece in the Christian Century entitled European Christian Missionaries and Their False Sense of Progress. The article begins with the question, can white Christians be saved? In the article, Jennings unpacks how whiteness came to be, at least from his vantage point, and how it has in the present continued to exist in what I might name as a parasitic relationship to Christianity. Jennings writes, and I quote, the goal of missionaries was not simply to bring new world peoples into the reality of salvation. It was also to see themselves as centered selves who project meaning onto the world and who may bring nature to its full purpose and use, end quote. For me, the point here is white people created whiteness by centering themselves in the world and attempting to organize the world around themselves or itself. Whiteness made up itself a subject, and I might say a deity. I don't know if Jennings would go that far, at least not in what I've read so far. But it did at least attempt to deify itself while objectifying everyone and everything else around it. That's people, that's the planet, that's places. So I think I'm trying to draw a connection between what Jennings says in this article and what's happening in Georgia at this very moment. Is what we see happening in Georgia and other states like Iowa, merely another manifestation of whiteness making of itself a subject and projecting meaning onto the world? If so, what does that mean? And how does it impact our life together? And what does it mean for Christianity, the Republican Party, democracy, and the church? That was a lot of questions, but I mean, they're all there. Get in where you're fitting in. I think what I found interesting about Jennings is he talks about land. Before Europeans came over here, the land and the people were so connected to one another. And and Europeans came in and just took everything over. Everything became a commodity, right? So they erased everything so that they could center themselves. I mean, that's how they did it. They Nothing else existed except for themselves. And that through time white folks or whiteness has continued to draw lines and create these segregations that exist. And so I know that when I was thinking about it in relation to the Georgia legislature, or even my time back in North Carolina, is that white folks have (laughs) declared that black folks don't belong in these spaces, that the area of the legislature or government or politics, this is this is not a place for blackness to be. This is only a place for whiteness, either white folks or people who are going to fit the structures that we have designed. That is what belongs here. And so we need to continue to erase anything that is not white in that space. 
Right. And white people have always found really interesting ways. And by interesting, I mean violent ways to do that. We see that in Tulsa, the Tulsa race massacre, not race riot, race massacre, white folks going to Tulsa and killing black folks who had a Change too much power who were being elected to public office. We saw that in Wilmington, right? White folks going to a city where black folks were amassing power and being elected to public office and killing them to make sure they were scared and wouldn't run. We saw that in the Atlanta race massacre. So throughout history and time, white folks have always responded in these ways to make sure that black people are clear. You don't belong here. This is not your space. Every lynching was about making sure that whiteness got to project its own sense of meaning and it got to define everything in the space. Black people's bodies, the trees, nature, buildings. It got to project its own self on everything. So say more, when you say that that phrase, you don't belong here, what exactly do you believe white people mean? Because it's, because it's not your phrase, right? You're saying that that's what white people are, are saying. Um, There's another Willie James Jennings piece. We're going to have to see if he'll come on the podcast and have a conversation with us because that would be really fun. But there's a lecture that he offered. I believe he was at Louisville Seminary. And he's talking about sundown towns. Do you know what sundown towns are, Sam? You got to be home before the sun goes down. That's it, Mm -hmm. right? Don't be caught in these neighborhoods. Don't be caught riding through Coleman, Alabama. See, you know what? Mm -hmm. You, You got them by name. Don't be caught riding through certain parts. Listen, I'm from Alabama. I know where the sundown towns are. You know it. And so at the end of the day, what sundown towns were about, so if you don't know what they are, sundown towns are the equivalent of suburbs, if you really want to be real. But they were, they were towns that purposely moved African-Americans, black people, sometimes also Jews, sometimes also Asians, out of the towns. And they aggressively sought to make themselves all white communities. Jennings talks about this in the lecture that I referenced Mm -hmm. earlier. So these towns that were filled with Christians aggressively pursued geographic whiteness. So the goal of that was to protect whiteness from blackness and to ensure that there could be a space that could move about free of any other bodies, free of any other perspectives other than their own white perspectives. And so when I'm saying that white folks are saying you don't belong here, that's what it literally means. So I think that we now have sundown churches. We now have sundown political systems. We now have sundown community life centers. We have sundown malls. This hasn't left. There are still places that I won't drive after the sun goes down even in the state of Georgia. I, I see it. I definitely understand and see it and agree with that. When you said the phrase a moment ago, you don't belong here. I thought about it in the context, not necessarily as geographic locations or, or places like churches or malls or, or neighborhoods, um, but hierarchical systems and structures, economics, government, those things. And it's kind of like you only belong here in the capacity that you are permitted or that you are allowed. And so it's, it's not like, hey, what are you doing in this neighborhood? It's like, oh, you walk into an executive board meeting with presidents and vice presidents and people are looking at you like, whoa, you know, <laughs> are you in the right room? You know, like, how did you get in here? Um, right. And it's the right. same thing. It's not the geographical location, right? But it's like, how the hell did you get through these cracks? Who interviewed this guy to be the VP? Like, you know, it's kind of like you don't belong here because you're not sweeping the floor because you're not driving the bus. Yeah. 
You have a role and somehow you've escaped that role and you're in a place that you really don't fit. And so now it's our job to prove that you don't fit and then to do what they say to instill integrity in the system now, because people have stopped believing that the system worked because look, uh, Jethro is somehow VP. You know, so black people don't belong at the polls. Correct. Kamala Harris doesn't belong in the vice president's office. Right. Right. She could be anything else. She could be the chief of staff. She could be all of these other things. And that's fine. So long as she can't be VP. Right. No. Right. It's about control. It's about exploitation. And it's about containment. And ultimately, when you have those three things as your goals, the outcome of that, the outcome of wanting to control, exploit and contain is is actually just going to be that you're killing people. It's going to be violence. It's going to be genocide. That's what Jenin says, right? That segregation, this geographic segregation. If you can't have legislated segregation, we're going to go ahead and have geographic segregation. That is always the precursor to genocide. And so that's what's happening now in the streets when black people and brown people are shot. And that's what's going to happen as they, as black and brown folks are continued to be silenced and held back from participating in what Americans quote-unquote, Americans, free people are supposed to be able to participate in. Well, so Jennings does take it to the next level, though. Jennings says that the church has been the high priest Mm -hmm. of segregated spaces and places. My God. Mm-hmm. Like the church hasn't served as a corrective. So the pastor of North Point Church isn't saying to the Republican representatives sitting in the pews, hey, you're doing evil, you're doing ill. The church is sanctifying it. The church is saying, this is actually okay. This is all well and good. And I think the point that Jennings tries to start to weave together is that in both the article that I referenced and in the lecture is really whiteness and Christianity have formed this sort of symbiotic relationship where really, I don't know if Jennings goes this far, but I'm taking it this far, where really when white folks say Christian, what they really do mean is white. Hmm. Yeah, they don't actually mean Christian. Is that true? Is that true, Katie? Oh, I, th- I mean, I think that's what they mean when they say Presbyterian. But what Jennings did say was that we have to decide if we've inherited uh, sundown Christianity, right? Mm. And and that has been just bouncing around in my head. Wow, I think Jennings still has a lot of hope for and hope in Christianity. I don't know if I'm that hopeful for Christianity in the American context. And so I don't think that we have a sundown Christianity. I think that Christianity is a sundown faith. I don't know if Christianity in the American context can exist beyond being a sundown faith. Hmm. Interesting. So many thoughts. I'm trying to see your distinction, but I don't disagree with you. I get it. I think I get it. Because to say sundown Christianity assumes that there's a version of Christianity that is not a sundown town. And what I'm trying to highlight is that Christianity in American context is always going to be a sundown faith or a sundown religion. Absolutely. Always. I'm thinking back to some of the first American missionaries that went to the continent of Africa. And I wrote a paper in seminary from this missionary named Mojola Agbebe. And he talked about how Western white Christianity forced anyone who converted to Christianity to totally dispense with their identity. And so even if they were evangelizing Muslims, then the Muslim could not, not only no longer be Muslim, they could no longer be African. Hmm. You understand? Like, and so when you talk about this sundown Christianity, it, it has always been that. You don't belong here if you remain this, if you are still this. You, even if you look back to some of the first black churches in America, they came into existence because 
white people would not allow black people to be black people in their spaces. Correct. Mm-hmm. They pulled them off the altar during prayer. And you get the birth of the AME church and you get the birth of so many other African-American denominations because not because black people weren't willing to say, hey, let's worship together. Let's do this thing together. It's because white people said, no, no, get out of our town by sundown. Yep. This is our town. Christianity is our town and, and you, you are not welcome here. Oftentimes we want to try to figure out if there's some sort of way to redeem Christianity. And I really think that that's a challenge in this season to divorce Christianity from its colonial impulses because it still may manifest in so many ways today. And we see that happening in Georgia where five of the six folks who authored House Bill 531 are proud Christians, Baptists, non-denominationalists, and Methodists. And those are our elected officials who make sure that they visit all these congregations every single time they're up for re-election. And these proud white Christian folks vote for them, and they do this. So I guess the question is, Sam and Katie, can white Christians be saved? Or can white people be saved? We're asking this question, can white people be saved? The question is, if white supremacy is the deity, Why do we seek salvation that is perpetuated by a colonial, colonizing, white supremacist society? Why why are black people even Christians? And the Heretic of the Day Award goes to... (laughs) Why are Hispanic folks Christians? Why is anybody Christian? Why are we still using the metrics of white people to define what salvation and Christianity is? If we are still going to subscribe to Christianity, it must completely and totally be deconstructed and and reimagined. Again, that creates all types of new problems. But the, the current Christianity, you know, I just I don't I don't subscribe to it. I subscribe to something different altogether. That's why I'm a humanist. Lord, well, the doors of the church are now open unto you <laughs> by, letter, by candidate for baptism in the humanist church of Sam. <laughs> it's true, though. It's so true. I started watching, don't ask me why, this uh, thing on Netflix called Murder Among the Mormons. And it goes to this guy who became this expert in forgery. And he, in, at 14, forged some coins and sent them to the Department of Treasury. And the Department of Treasury sent him a certificate that came back that said that, th- that it was authentic. This is a white guy. And in that moment, he said, if the Department of Treasury says this is authentic, whether it is or not, it automatically becomes authentic. That's what white people have done with Christianity and everything else that they have touched because they have declared it sacred, because they have said this is the standard, because they have said this is the way it instantly becomes whatever it is that they declare. And it automatically becomes a justification for them to colonize, for them to oppress, for them to enslave. And this has been what has defined and shaped what we call Christianity since its inception or at least since white people have been a part of it. And so why would we want to be a part of that? Why would anybody want to be a part of that? You can, if you're going to save white people, you got to throw their version of Christianity out of the window. Katie, he's talking to you, girl. 
I, I, I was just going to say what he said. <laughs> <laughs> you like copy paste. <laughs> Cite my source. I mean, that's what I asked you yesterday. Like, why? How can black people be saved in this Christianity? Like, why? And the ultimate underlying question is, why would black people want to be part of Christianity? But Sam said it a whole lot better. So I'm just going just going to cite my source and say what he said. Yeah. It's because white people said this is authentic. They did what the Department of Treasury did in this instance. They said, no, this is the authentic version. So black people are saying, give me Jesus. Give me that. Mm. Yeah. You can have all the world. Right. Give me, but give me this, what white people have said is real. Black people need to start saying, I don't want that shit. That's bullshit. And it ain't holy shit. <laughs> ain't holy at all. Give me Jesus. Ah. I'm a little horse today, but I got a sermonic selection. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Now he's trying to make himself sound more horse. I can't stand <laughs> Brandon. He makes me sick. Uh-huh. He's a mess. Speaking of the Mormon, Sam, I think to wrap this up, it sounds like you want to go to the Book of Mormon. If you haven't seen the Book of Mormon musical, it's actually a pretty decent musical. The Mormons are going around there evangelizing and there's an entire sort of montage where they're going to the African continent to save the Africans. And when they get to one particular African village, the Africans say, basically, who is this God of which you speak? And they're like, oh, it's the God that's been here all along. You just didn't know that this God existed. And the African folks, and I believe that they do frame them as Africans and or give them a fictional African village. If you didn't know Africa is a continent, not a country, I'm just going with <laughs> what they say in the musical. But the song that they sing is called Hasa Diga Ibuai. I don't think it's actually real, but it translates in the musical to F you God. <laughs> and the whole musical is like, we don't need that guy because if the God you're talking about has been since the beginning of time, that guy's let all this other shit right here happen. So to your God, I say, Hasa Digga Iboa. It sounds like that's what you said, Sam. I'm saying that, Hasa Digga Iboa. Now, Mama, I know you're listening. My question is, do you cringe when we say Hasa Digga Iboa? Because <laughs> is, is that a swear word, Mom? Is that a swear word? Let me know. Write it in the comments, Mom. Love you. Let's take another quick break. When we come back, we'll head onto the mourner's bench. Stick around for a good old belly laugh. Hey there, friends. Are you enjoying what you're hearing on the Holy Shit Pod? You better be. If so, you can support this podcast and other Theolab Media projects by visiting patreon.com forward slash Theolab Media. Hey, Katie. And hey, Katie. Yes. What are yes. other Theolab Media projects? I'm glad you asked. You sound like a black pastor. I'm glad you asked. Go ahead. <laughs> we have Healing Jephthah's Daughters Ooh. and How to Live When You're Afraid to Die. Who's the host of Healing Jephthah's Daughters? That sounds really intriguing. That host is amazing. It's Reverend Dr. Lisa Weaver. Ooh, and who's the host of the other one? That is Natalie Faria. I'm excited. I can't wait till they come out. Are they coming out like maybe in the next few weeks? Is like the trailer for Healing Jephthah's Daughters coming out by the end of this month? Yes, it is. I mean, I really don't know. But yes, yes, it's supposed to be out by the end of this month. Too too much branding. Too much branding. You can't ask every single question. You got to ask one question and let her give the rest of the information. <laughs> but she don't know the answers. I was trying to leave her because she actually didn't know the answers. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I d it was supposed to, but I hadn't heard anything. Do you also oh. see that the idiot that wrote the copy for today's episode said, let's go back. Oh, it is the Mourner's Bench. We renamed that last section the Mourner's Bench. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was the podcast. Let's go to the bench. Katie, did you finish your ad? I didn't because you just said that. 
Okay, you go. All right, let's head on over to the mourner's bench. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all some special ass people, man. All right, good people. The time has come and the hour is nigh. It is time for our weekly closing segment that we like to call the mourner's bench. We got some folks to sit on this bench this week. If you don't know what this is, go back and listen to episode one. It'll clue you in. By this point, everybody under the sound of my voice should know what this here mourner's bench is. There's some folks that need to be saved from their trifling ways. Who's on the bench? I want to put all white people on the bench. It was bound to happen. And for you, well to do progressive liberal white folks who's saying, I don't know why he put me on the bench because I'm out here fighting for justice. Oh, damn. And I'm out here marching for freedom and I am an ally and I support my black brothers and my Hispanic sisters and all of my minority siblings around the country. Your ass needs to be on the bench too. I think I think you should press your claim. Press your claim. But I think there's a lot of folks who really get disturbed and really are challenged when we say all white people. And a lot of white folks are like, I don't want to be included in that group. I'm not bigoted like that group over there. I'm not homophobic or xenophobic or nativist. I'm not racist. I'm not any of those things like those white people who are trying to keep black people from voting. Those white people who don't want black people in their neighborhood. Those white people who, who believe this or who believe that. But I'm going to tell you something about whiteness. That just because you have stuck a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard, just because you're a few generations removed from your slave holding great, great grandparents does not mean that you do not benefit from the whiteness that continues to oppress other people, other races, other ethnicities, other genders, others in our society and you still have much work to do that goes beyond showing up at a march that goes beyond wearing a t-shirt that has a nice slogan that goes beyond getting arrested a couple of times you will forever live with this burden and until you understand that this is ongoing work that you will be engaged in and i'm not talking about the outward work i'm not talking about the work that you can you know Go, go look at yourself on, on Facebook doing. I'm talking about the inward journey. I'm talking about the internal work that you will have to continue to do for the rest of your life. And so that's why I said all white folks. So I'm not saying all white folks are in the same category, but I'm saying you all benefit from your whiteness and you all need to be on the bench because of that. Uh, okay. Um, that I, I actually agree with everything that you've said. That came out of left field. Was it the subject matter that kind of triggered you there? I'm just tired of white folks. <laughs> I've been tired. See, you know, I'm a person of balance. And on this podcast, that's been my role to be tired of the white folks. <laughs> and then you have now <laughs> taken away my role and I don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> white people are going to think I'm just so hard. It looks like, wow, Sam does not like white people. Oh, my gosh. And that can be okay. That's not true. It's not that I don't like white people. Oh. So now you're going to apologize for it? I didn't say I was sorry. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Even the white people I like, their ass is on the bench too. It's not that I don't like a couple of white folks. I do. The bench is hard. I'm going to be here a while. I know it. Until the Lord returns. Right. Katie, I love Katie. But Katie is lily white. Katie is like, she's like King Arthur's flower. Baking flour white. Uh, Baking flour? Not the unbleached. Katie is white, white. 
And because of her whiteness, she needs to sit her ass on the bench because I journey closely with Katie. I know how she reflects and I know how she thinks about things and I know some of the things that she goes through. But I also see her whiteness sometimes. And can you imagine the people who don't open up, who don't engage in these relationships with black folks and other folks, how much of their whiteness is showing? So, yeah, all white folks on the bench. So are you are you going to sit next to all the white people and journey with them through this process? Are you going to no? Okay, yep. That's not my burden. <laughs> that's not my burden. I just I'm I'm just trying to figure out if they all sitting there together. That's not going to be good. That's not my burden. White people should never make it black folks' burden to help them through this journey of dispensing with their whiteness. I agree with you. I'm never. I, I agree with you. We just need like a usher ministry that helps to guide them because they're going to be lost if they're there alone. <laughs> It's true. It's true. But if they're on the bench, they can't really do any damage from the bench. Right. I don't I don't care. I don't care. These five people that I'm going to put on the bench are already there. Thanks, Sam. Yeah. But You're welcome. to be precise, <laughs> Representative Rick Williams, Representative Lynn R. Smith, Representative Shaw Blackman, Speaker Pro Tempore. Is that how you say it? I think so. It is today. Yeah. So Speaker Pro Tempore, Jan Jones, and Representative Barry Fleming, all five of you are on the mourner's bench. There's a sixth person, but I forgot to look up your name because you refused to let us know whether or not you was a Christian. (laughs) (laughs) At least you didn't put it in your bio. Thank you to whoever you are, mystery sixth person. But all of you are on the bench because you took the time to author this crazy-ass bill and you are advancing it through Congress in a ruthless way, trying to disparage black voters who are also Christians, who you should see as your siblings based on the Bible you claim to read. And Representative Rick Williams, I have a special task for you. Because in your bio, you also let all of America know, mostly Georgians, that in addition to being a member of First United Methodist Church in Midgeville, Georgia, you also own several funeral homes. And because I believe that these white people are going to be here until they die, we need to put you on a respirator so that you can embalm them and take care of the bodies when they finish. You have a special task. Well, the sixth person, Brandon, is Alan Powell. Make sure that he gets called out on the bench as well. Put him on there. And tell us your church affiliation too, Alan. (laughs) Right. At least say it. At least tell us. Don't be lukewarm. But I think we can go ahead and throw on all the representatives and soon-to-be senators who are voting on Georgia House Bill 531 that is going to pass it. But in light of this conversation today, I think we need to also, they're probably already here, but set out a special section for the pastors of these churches that these five people who have articulated what they are for not actually talking about this Jesus, the one who stands on the side of the marginalized, the the one who is actually seeking hope and justice in the world. So we're going to call out their pastors for a special... In hell. Well, I was just going to say the mourner's bench. I didn't know we were sending people to hell yet, but... I got a longer list for that, but we got a lot of shows. Ooh, they better be they better be glad I'm not in charge of who goes. That is a wrap on today's episode of The Mourner's Bench. Thank you so much for listening. Go ahead and do us a solid. Hit that subscribe button at the top of your feed. But apparently now Apple calls it a follow button, so hit that too. And if you happen to be listening in Apple Podcasts, go ahead and leave us a rating and a review. If you have things you'd like us to discuss here on the Holy Shit Pod, please email holyshit at theolabmedia.com. 
Until next week, peace. Peace.